Today we're hearing from an internal medicine program director on leadership in the early career, academics versus private practice, residency program leadership, advice for the upcoming match, and much more. Welcome to the Talk To Me Doc podcast, where it's all about serving the early career physician. Let's talk about the unique issues that face us so we can create a better future for ourselves and those to come. And now your host, Dr. Andrew Tisser. Hey, everybody, it's Andrew, and welcome back to the Talk To Me Doc podcast. I'm so happy to have you. For my returning listeners, thank you so much. For my new listeners, welcome. Because today, like on every episode, I'm bringing you the best guests from all around healthcare and beyond to discuss issues relating to the early career physician. Today, I have an extremely special guest. My wife, the one and only Dr. Alicia Kwiatkowski. Dr. Kwiatkowski is the program director for the Internal Medicine Training Program at the State University of New York, SUNY at Buffalo. In her work with the training program, Dr. Kwiatkowski has redesigned and transitioned the curriculum to an interactive, multifaceted, near-peer, and learner-centered models. She also focuses on empowering her learners to be integral parts of their educational experiences. Dr. Kwiatkowski works in the Medical Education and Educational Research Institute, MARI, on faculty development, interactive learning models, and medical education research. She completed the Jacobs Excellence Educator Program, a faculty development program to enhance teaching and evaluation skills, the SUNY Sale Leadership Academy, is a member of the Gold Humanism Honor Society, and has received multiple teaching awards. Dr. Kwiatkowski earned her doctorate from the New York Institute of Technology College of Osteopathic Medicine, shout out NICOM. She completed her residency and chief residency at Albany Medical Center, the major academic center associated with Albany Medical College. Dr. Kwiatkowski completed her fellowship in rheumatology at Rush University Medical Center, where she received certification in teaching excellence. She earned her Master's of Science in the Natural Sciences from the University of Buffalo Roswell Park Cancer Institute. Well, it is sincerely my pleasure to bring Dr. Kwiatkowski onto the show. Dr. Alicia Kwiatkowski, welcome to the Talk To Me Doc podcast. Thank you. I'm so happy you're here sitting next to me. On our couch. (laughs) Well, welcome. I already introduced you to the listeners, but in your own words, could you tell us who you are and what you do? Sure. My name is Alicia. I'm the program director for the Internal Medicine Residency Program at the State University of New York at Buffalo. It's a large program. We have 121 residents. I'm also a clinical rheumatologist, and I care for a largely underserved patient population at Erie County Medical Center. And lastly, I work in our Medical Education and Educational Research Institute as an educator development specialist. Clearly, somebody's the smarter one in this relationship. (laughs) But anyway, so you finished your fellowship and you decided uh, to go into academics. Can you explain to listeners how you came to that decision versus private practice or solo practice or group practice? Well, first, I think without a doubt, this is where I'm meant to be. Although for me, I probably didn't realize that as early as I should have. I first became interested in academia when I was a chief resident, just being involved in you know the administrative duties that come along with being a chief, in addition to some of the more innovative curricular and educational things. In fellowship, I continued. I started medical education research, did some things to enhance my own skill set in education, such as teaching excellence courses, working with the residents and medical students. But even upon fellowship graduation, I found myself interviewing with private practice groups in the local Buffalo community. And I interviewed actually with two groups and got pretty deep in negotiations before 
you know, I had just an epiphany that I belonged in academia and then talked to the university and things worked out really well for me there. And I'm happy with what I do. But even for me, who prides myself on being an educationalist, it wasn't necessarily the most straightforward path. Yeah, that's a fair point. I think it's important, maybe we could stop here. And if you could just give some of your advice to perhaps the graduating resident or fellow that's trying to decide between academics or not academics. Um, certainly, there's a lot of factors to consider other than do I like to teach, right? So um, how, how would you suggest someone comes to that decision? And, and what factors should they weigh? Well, I think it goes along with experience to some degree. I mean, training programs, many of them are in academic environments. So trainees tend to feel more comfortable in that environment because that's what they know. But if there's opportunities for trainees to see what private practice is like or group settings and the residency programs can offer elective and electives in those opportunities, then I think that's a really great way. I think mentorship is important as well and having really solid mentors in desired fields of interest that can point a resident or a fellow in the right direction and talk about specialty specific differences between academia and private practice. I mean, when considering both, private practice settings tend to have higher salaries. Um, most of them have pretty good benefit packages that go along with them. But you're working full-time clinically. You know, Hopefully, you do have administrative support, but the majority of your time is spent in the clinical setting. In academic medicine, many start off you know, full-time clinically to begin with, but there's so many opportunities for other things that can be interesting, education and educational leadership or innovative curricular design is just one area, but there's administrative roles, there's quality improvement, there's research and scholarly activity. So whereas the salary might not be as high, often there's protected time and that protected time can be acquired as the years go on and can accumulate. Um, so I think those are a couple of the things. And then, of course, for people that have high debt burdens, um, being at a non-for-profit, which you know most, of, most academic institutions are, qualifies you for public service loan forgiveness, which, you know, when adding that um, difference to your salary, academia might be actually a lucrative option. I know it was for me. Um, so those are just a couple of, of sort of the overarching differences between the two. Yeah, that's fair. I mean, I think it's an important point to stress that if you are on track for public 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 service loan forgiveness um, and you have a large debt burden, you can really just divide the years you have left by your total burden um, and add that to your salary once you factor forgiveness. But that's another topic for another day. Uh, me personally, I don't want to ever do another literature review. So uh, I think that ruled out academics because, uh, you know, publishing and such. Is the is the pressure to publish really as, uh, as much as people say it is? I think that depends on the institution and the division, what the expectations are from that specific place. But I, I don't necessarily feel that. To be honest, publication is often necessary for promotional purposes. If you're going from assistant professor to associate professor, then I know at our institution, you have to have excellence in two domains of which, you know, clinical experience and education or research and scholarly activity are those three domains. So, um, you know, it's not going to hurt you. I don't feel like it's a publish or perish type of environment. And for me personally, I found that doing research in something that I really enjoy 
makes it a whole lot more palatable. And I mean, I have basic science research, I have clinical research, but now I do medical education research because that's aligned with my career goals and what I think is fun and what I find to be rewarding in my own career. So while it is necessary, there's a lot of different opportunities that one could engage in scholarly activity, even if it's a, you know, a book chapter or a case series, or if it's quality improvement work, there's usually something you can find that is of interest. Good point. Good point. So um, you are a program director of a large residency program. So you must have been, you must be in practice for like 25 years, right? Well, we'd have quite an age differential between us <laughs> if that was the case. Um, but no. So you graduated fellowship in 2019. Uh, we're recording this in August of 2022. Uh, and you are full program director. So let's talk a little bit about kind of, uh, you know, I like to call it your meteoric rise. And uh, how, you know, how you accomplish that advice to young leaders and advice to people who maybe see program director as their forever goal instead of their three-year goal? Well, let's be honest, right? Program director was my forever goal um, just a few short years ago. I think for me, being involved in administrative roles and educational roles, as I mentioned, from chief resident in through fellowship, um, sort of set me up for success, even though I didn't necessarily you know, jump straight to it. I, I ended up there, and I'm happy that I did. Um, but I did those things because I enjoyed doing those things, and I found those experiences to be rewarding. And I tell my residents this, you know, no matter where you match for fellowship, you can take oppor- take advantage of opportunities that that specific institution provides um, for you to really kind of set yourself up when you're looking in the job search for things that will make you happy. You know, so for me, having the opportunity to engage in medical education research and have really really wonderful mentorship. Big shout out to Rush. I don't know um, if there's any listeners, but I love Rush and I was so fortunate to train there. Um, And that kind of set me up for success. So then when I started talking to the university, I was able to get protected time, you know, right upon graduation, working in our medical education and educational research institute on things that I like doing. And from there, there's always opportunity. Um, there's committees that you can join. You can volunteer to give lectures or, I mean, I don't really give lectures, but interactive sessions or didactics for the students or the residents and just be enthusiastic, get involved, let people know you want to help. I mean, when somebody comes to me asking, you know, how they could get involved in the residency program, that just made my day because there's so many different things that they could do that are also aligned with their own career interests and their own career goals. So I think it's being aware of what opportunities there are for you. I mean, at UB, there's teaching excellence courses, there's um, opportunities to get masters in various fields, there's all sorts of faculty development initiatives that if you're aware of them, you can really take advantage of them. So I think that's kind of the first step is exploring different things, finding what truly interests you, what makes you happy, and then letting people know that you're eager and you're hungry and you're interested and you want to be involved. I think the second thing is keeping your eyes open for opportunities. the program directorship, I started as APD for curriculum development because that's what I you know, really enjoy. Um, but then the program director ended up stepping down and there was an, an open opportunity for me. And I was happy to be in almost an apprenticeship style program, associate program director role for a couple of years before taking on the job in full, um, which really also set me up for success to learn a very complicated medical system and who all the key players were with a very large program. So ultimately, 
let it be known that you're there, get involved, um, and opportunities will present themselves probably quicker than you would expect. Yeah, I love that. And we've talked about it on the show before, you know, tell people that you are interested. Um, that goes so far. It's, it's helped me. Uh, clearly, it's helped Alicia here. Um, it's, uh, it's really when you tell people in the leadership positions that you want to help, um, doors seem to open for you, um, as, as they do when you have concrete goals. So, um, now I know it's 2022, but I, unfortunately we still have to talk about this. You are a woman in medicine and you are a female leader, which unfortunately there still aren't as many as they should be. Um, maybe you could talk a little bit on some of the challenges that would be unique. Well, I'm a relatively young female leader. And I think, you know, to finish answering your your previous question about being young in a leadership position, I think that, you know, and I tell my residents, it's like, you have to know your own worth and know your own value and know that you're there for a reason, right? And and just because um, you may not have years and years and years of experience in that role doesn't mean that you're not qualified to do it or bring a fresh, innovative perspective. And I think for young leaders or, or, or young faculty members on the rise, that's really where mentorship becomes important. And I think especially for female leaders, having female mentorship is also pretty important. I'm fortunate to have amazing female and male mentors, um, which include my department chair and two previous program directors. And, you know, it's nice to have that that sense of camaraderie. Yeah, as a woman in medicine, I mean, there's microaggressions. They happen all the time. They happen at least weekly. Occasionally, there's macroaggressions. And, you know, when I first started as a faculty member, I found myself becoming increasingly more aware of them and increasingly more frustrated because I was more aware of them. Um, and I remember one of my chief residents who was an all-star female resident being really upset by a couple of instances that had occurred to her. And I think, you know, one thing that kind of helps me get through that is knowing when I need to say something, knowing when something that's said or done is really against like my core values as a person. And when those are being significantly compromised, then I feel like I have an obligation to myself and I have to remain true to myself to address that head on. For other things, I think it's important to just take a step back and ask yourself, is this a personal attack against me or is this not deliberate? Not that it makes it better, but it helped me in not becoming so angry about encountering micro and macro aggressions frequently. I think the other thing too is, you know, women make up 50% of all graduating medical school classes. And this has been the past couple of years that this has been the case. I think it was actually 51% or something like that. So we're going to be seeing more women in medicine. We're going to be seeing more women in leadership positions. I know our program just created a women in medicine group. And I think, um, I think things will change. I'm hopeful that things will change despite the current political climate. I'm hopeful. And I think that that's all I can really do is support my residents, show them the tools to use when they encounter scenarios like that, stay true to my core values, and be hopeful for the future. Well said, and how lucky your residents are to have you kind of showing them the way. Um, while we're talking about your program, we're talking about your residents, so let's get into it a little bit. You know, you we have a recruitment season coming our way. I know you're excited, <laughs> uh, but uh, it's it's that time of year again. So um, maybe you could share a little bit, you know, whatever you can uh, with the listeners as to how you and your program look at recruitment, 
how you approach it and uh, what you're looking for in an ideal resident. Well, the funny story about recruitment, um, our daughter was actually born on the day before match day, which is when the programs find out who they matched. And it was, this was not the previous match day, the one before that. It was my first time, you know, really leading recruitment and doing all the things for recruitment. So I was an active labor and I made everything stop. So Andrew could read me the match list. <laughs> and, you know, my first year, I know everything about those residents. I, I know everything about their applications and recruitment is really fun. Um, it is challenging. There are so many applicants now and with virtual interviews and interview hoarding, it's a little bit of a different um, monster. So, you know, some of the things that we do is we do use filters, but on ERES applications, I also independently review and my APDs help me in reviewing, I think last year we did 2,500 applicants um, by hand to make sure that we weren't missing anything. And I think, you know, we come up with what we value for a program. We look at, we do 360 degree review processes. So of course we look and see how a resident performed on their standardized exams, but we also look to see how did they do in their clinical rotations? What are their letters of recommendation look like? What's their class rank? And then what are the other things that our program values, right? So do they have any scholarly activity or research interests, any quality improvement interests? Have they held any leadership positions? Advocate, advocacy is really big in our program. So have they done any advocacy or volunteer work? Um, do they have any ties to the area? Do they want to be in the Buffalo area? Do they want to remain here long term? Um, those are some of the things that that we look at when we're doing our review processes. And we give different totals in, in each of those various domains according to, you know, or did you publish something in a peer review journal? Did you present an abstract? And each thing gets a total. And then we call that the application score. So as we're going through reviewing applications, we, you know, we'll calculate scores for some of the applicants and decide interview or not. And we also keep those application scores with us as the applicant comes to interview with us and then ultimately for rank. For interview purposes, I blind our interviewers to pictures ahead of the day because everyone knows that there's implicit bias and we try to mitigate that every way that we can. So, um, so yeah, you know, we blind to board scores. I blind the interviews to the board, interviewers to the board scores and to photos ahead of interview day. So we really try to follow a holistic 360 degree review process and eliminate bias wherever we think it may be subject to come up. That's great. So, you know, you, you mentioned some of the things that you value in your program, but, you know, wh what would you say you are looking for in an ideal resident? Well, you know, I get asked that two million times during recruitment <laughs> season by the applicants, but, you know, Buffalo is my home. It's where I grew up. It's where we chose to come back to, to, to have our family. So, you know, what makes an ideal resident to me is somebody that I would want caring for you or caring for our daughter, or caring for my parents, you know, somebody that is in medicine for the right reason, um, and somebody that I could be proud of upon graduation, knowing that they provided the best patient care that they possibly could. Yes, we, uh, it was pretty interesting when uh, we had full virtual interviews, and uh, I uh, would be walking past the office hearing really the same questions asked uh, pretty much uh, any given day and a lot of the similar answers. But I will share this gem that uh, Alicia shared with me that she was asked by an applicant. If you were an animal, what would it be? I think uh, 
That's a great question. I wasn't mad at that. It really broke up, you know, a long interview season and kind of caught me off guard, made me think a little bit. Um, but yes, that was a fun one. <laughs> so um, I uh, posted on social media a few weeks ago and collected some questions from prospective applicants. Um, and I was hoping that you could answer a couple of them for the listeners. Uh, and the first one, I think, is a very astute question. And it is given this uh uh, step one now going to pass fail. Um, how are you treating boards? Is step two just going to replace it as most important? Since step one was kind of weighted so heavily previously, how how is your program going to treat step one? Well, first, I'm a huge fan actually of step one going pass fail. Um, Practically speaking, I do think that programs have looked towards step two to help, whether that's, you know, we, I think we got like 5,500 applicants, right? So to filter, to use the filter to some degree for a step two score, but, you know, if step one was made pass fail, we don't really know what direction step two is going to be going in, right? So I think our program was an early adapter to the 360 degree review process. And I think as time goes on, more programs are going to have to to start to think about um, similar processes. Granted, it is time consuming to do that. It definitely is. And so practically, I think right now it's a combination of both. Yes, step two does matter. Yes, it is being used for filters. But I also think that there is an evolution and a push for programs to really start to think about more, more thorough application reviews. Fair point. The next question was, uh, how do you treat the couples match? Do you feel that people applying as a couple hurts their application or helps it or does it not matter at all? I get asked that question a lot. Um, Andrew and I couples matched and, you know, my heart goes out to you guys couples matching because it just adds a layer of complexity and stress to already pretty stressful process. Um, you know, we try to work with our applicants that are couples matching. You know, if I know that someone is applying to my program and their significant other is applying to PEDS, I'll reach out to the PEDS program director if they haven't gotten an interview to try to ha- ask them to, you know, manually review their application. And then once it comes down, you know, to ranking, we will talk. Um, we want to keep families together. We don't want to split up families. I think I can't answer that question because it's based on individual situations. If you have two people applying to the same programs, right, in the same specialty, it could negatively impact you. It might not, depending on what those programs are, right? If they are small competitive programs like urology um, or ENT, then that might be difficult to couples match, more difficult to couples match into the same program compared to internal medicine or family medicine that, you know, has bigger, bigger program sizes. If they're different specialty choices, you know, I don't think it it really matters that much. Um, don't forget that when you make your rank list, you're ranking combinations. So inevitably, one of the combinations you'll likely put in is yourself, your rank list, and your partner not matching anywhere. And then the opposite, your partner's rank list with you not matching anywhere, which ensures that one of you will match even if the other does not. Yeah, the couples match was not fun. So uh, my heart goes out to you as well. Um, Another question uh, we received is, do personal statements even matter? Do you read them? Oh, I do. I read every one. Um, why? I guess I never really asked myself why I, re- I read them. I read them to look for, you know, communication skills, 
I do, you know, quickly look at grammar. If there's like egregious grammatical mistakes, it's kind of a bit of a red flag. Do they keep it to one page? But mainly I read them to learn something about that person. Is there something interesting? Do we have common ground? Um, can I bring this up to them at the interview and ask them a little bit more about it? Because in a lot of personal statements, people write about interesting experiences or things that they're really passionate about. People also use the personal statement to address any um, things in their ERAS application that may need to be addressed, like an initial board failure or a gap in training. And so I also read the personal statements to see if I saw something on the on the ERAS application, is it explained in that personal statement? Um, so it, they they do matter. Are they going to help you? I'm not so sure about that. Can they hurt you? Yes, they can. Especially, you know, grammatically, they should be as close to perfect as you can get them. The personal statement should not be a regurgitation of your CV. We have that. It should be how experiences have impacted you. What did you learn from them? How did that um, influence your decision to pursue that specialty training? And please keep it to one page. Just keep it to one page. Um, beyond that, you know, I, I'm not sure how long people will continue to read. So look for grammar, talk about how experiences impacted you, and keep it to one page. Okay. And the final question was, is there any one thing, factor, experience that will absolutely kill your application? Is there any, like, ma major uh, landmines that you could step on when submitting an ERS? Well, they should be submitted on time. Why put yourself at any disadvantage? I don't think that's a major landmine, but I think you have time on your side right now. It's something that you should really get it submitted on time or as close to on time as you can. I think incomplete applications are a bit of a red flag, like if somebody didn't upload their picture or there's incomplete sentences or it just looks unfinished. Um, or as I mentioned, you know, a ton of grammatical errors, a ton of typos, that could be a red flag as well. I mean, obviously, it asks you questions like, have you ever been convicted of a felony or a misdemeanor? And unless, you know, that that raises a flag. Um, so there are obviously, like, obvious things on there that can be red flags. But I think as long as it's complete and accurate, um, no. Okay. Well, Alicia, I'd like to give you a minute or two to kind of hype up the Buffalo program, the internal medicine program, uh, what makes your program special and uh, why should people apply to your program? Well, this is kind of a similar question that I'm asked, you know, what's my favorite thing about the program? And undoubtedly, my answer is always the residents. As I, as I talked about, I put a lot of time, we put a lot of time, the residents put a lot of time into recruitment. And it's for a reason, right? We're about to bring in the next class that's going to be working alongside our students and our current residents and our faculty. And that's important to us. So I think even though we are a large program, the sense of camaraderie, especially through the pandemic, that that these residents have felt for one another on um, the dedication to their community has really been impressive to me. Our program has gone through some pretty radical changes over the past three years, and we have had residents involved in every one of those changes. So I'm a huge believer of empowerment. I'm a huge believer in having the learner have the ultimate seat at the table, right? This is their training program. It sh our goals should be shared. We should have shared goal goals for where we want the program to be. We do that through a variety of ways. We have a committee and champion structure. I have an open door policy. We're constantly communicating but I think something that sets us apart is that we're evolving and we will continue to evolve every year according to, you know, changes in expectations, changes in generations, changes to political climates, changes to needs. 
Um, and that is something that is unique to us and that we pride ourselves on. We also have a pretty innovative and unique curriculum. We have an academic half-day model, robust gamification curricula, um, transitions, boot camps, and then, you know, practical things like you came and gave the residents a talk on career design. Um, we've had Jordan Fry come and give our residents a talk about financial literacy. We have contract, um, contract negotiation sessions. So we really try to prepare our residents for what is life going to look like after residency. Um, so that is just another unique aspect about our curriculum. Those are some of the things I love. Our residents also spend time at three different main training sites, which include a huge tertiary care center, a county hospital, and the VA. So between those three sites, they really get a very well-rounded training experience, and they're so adaptable. Upon graduation, they can walk into any practice setting and thrive, and that's because they experienced it in their residency. I was the best speaker, though, right? Yes. <laughs> All right. Well, we're running out of time here. So uh, let's just get, shift the show a little bit to get to know you as the guest. Um, do you have a favorite book or a book recommendation for the listener? Undoubtedly, my favorite book of all time, as you know, is Pride and Prejudice. I know if it's like kind of stereotypical, but Elizabeth Bennett was a badass. And I think it's a classic for a reason and it gets adapted and readapted so many times for a reason. So if you've never read it, I think it's it's worth a read. That's the one with the zombies, right? No. Uh, Although, it, as you know, it was adapted into zombies. Pride and Prejudice and Zombies sounds cooler. It wasn't. <laughs> what do you like to do for fun? Spend time with you yes. and our daughter. Um, drink a lot of good wine, eat a lot of good food, and travel to places to drink good wine and eat good food. I mean, that sounds good to me. Um, so finally, you've given us a lot of great advice already on this show. But if you could give the early career physician just one single piece of advice, what would that be? Well, you knew we were not going to get through this podcast without one Hamilton quote. Mm -hmm. um, so I'm going to have to bring it out now. And that would really be rise up, you know, know your worth, know your resources, know that you have that voice and and use it. You're you're a physician, you're a faculty now, you're a leader in your community, you're probably a leader in your family and close social circles, you're a leader, leader at your institution or within your private practice. So um, just rise up and really own it and be proud of what you've accomplished and, and know that your voice is worth it. Awesome. Couldn't have said it better myself. Um, if people want to learn more about you or get in touch with you, where can they find you? I think the best way to find me is my email address. It's A as in Alicia, V as in Victoria, K as in Kwiatkowski6 at buffalo.edu. Again, AVK6 at buffalo.edu. All right. And we'll put that in the show notes for the listeners and a link to the residency main page. Well, Alicia, thank you so much for spending the time with me on the couch. I really appreciate it and uh, for sharing all your wisdom with all the listeners. Thanks for having me. Bye-bye. What a fantastic episode that was with Dr. Kwiatkowski. I really enjoyed hearing all of her insights, even though I hear them all the time. Thank you again for listening. If you enjoyed the show, please leave me an honest rating and review on Apple Podcasts and share it with at least three of your friends and colleagues. It really helps to get the show out there. The other thing I'd like you to do after listening is check out my website at andrewtisserdo.com. The Trusted Partners site has been updated recently and has lots of great resources for physicians early in their career. Thank you again for listening, everyone. And as always, keep talking.
All opinions expressed by the guest in this episode are solely the guest's opinions and do not reflect the opinions of Andrew Tissardio, TalkToMe.LC, or any affiliates thereof. The guest's opinions are based upon information he or she considers reliable, but Andrew Tissardio, TalkToMe.LC, nor any affiliates thereof warrant its completeness or accuracy. The guest, Andrew Tissardio, TalkToMe.LC, or any affiliates thereof are not under any obligation to update or correct any information provided in this episode. The guest statements and opinions are subject to change without notice.